0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hello again, lovely listeners, and welcome to another episode of Girl Presses Play, I hope you all are enjoying fall weather, getting cozy, watching all the award season films, and doing all that fun fall stuff. So, as we were recording this episode's interview, the news broke that Warner Brothers had scrapped the upcoming Batgirl film starring Leslie Grace, J.K. Simmons, and Michael Keaton, who would be reprising his role as Batman. While we want to acknowledge, of course, that This must have been really, really just shocking and especially disappointing for the entire creative team behind the project. I thought that it also might be interesting to take a look at the movie that started it all and see if there are any connections we can make to the larger history of the film, franchise, canon universe library, whatever you want to call it at this point, because there's a whole lot of Batman out there. But anyway, for this episode, I brought in an amazing filmmaker and BFF, Darren Kwan, to see what we can find as we take a look at the film that started it all for the Caped Crusader on screen, 1989's Batman, directed by Tim Burton.
1: Don't kill me, man! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman.
0: He is an Asian-American director originally from California who transplanted to Brooklyn in 2007. He started drawing at 2, writing short stories at 10, playing guitar at 14, taking photographs at 17, and directing at 19. No pressure, though. Working in both the narrative and commercial world, his clients include Google, Chase, Subaru, Nerf, Nespresso, and Nike. His work is screened at the Sundance and the Tallgrass Film Festival, where he won Best Cinematography, and he is currently in post-production on his short film, Jared and Daughter. Most importantly, he is a co-parent with his wife to the greatest cat in all of existence, Phil. We will hyperlink all of his social medias below. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm welcome to Darren Quad. Oh my God, Darren is showing me a picture of Phil and it is glorious.
1: (laughs) Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: How are you, sir? Good,
1: good. Happy to be here in this very soundproofed bunker location. Top secret.
0: Just for a note, guys, this is actually the first episode that I have recorded with a guest like in person, Mark Marin style, where we're sitting across from each other and actually seeing each other's faces and not on Zoom. So smoking
1: cigars too. You got a big cigar in your hand.
0: Oh yeah, I'm on like my fifth Cavassier at this point, so <laughs> yeah. it's gonna get real weird. I'm gonna turn into yeah. one of those fifty year old men that drinks too much whiskey gingers and starts talking about the good old days on your American Airline flight. That's it's gonna be that's great. how
1: you podcast. So, that's
0: how yeah. you <laughs> podcast. You grow a mustache, you drink too much Cavassier, and yeah. you talk about the good old days, which weren't actually that good. But anyway, enough about the good old days. Let's talk about Batman. Yes. Specifically, and I didn't know you were actually such a big fan of this, the 1989 Tim Burton Batman, which is kind of the one that started it all. So generally speaking, why do you think this is one of the Batman films that everybody goes back to when they're talking about Batman on film?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a lot of things. um, And it could be different things for different people. For me, anyway what i always liked about the 1999 or 1989 film was it struck this balance between a very real portrayal of bruce wayne and his trauma and the effects that it has on him and his his life his personal life and also the fantasy that you know he puts on a giant rubber suit and he fights crime which is kind of ridiculous but the way that all those things are treated it's treated very like honestly and truthfully, and I think it helps that you have a director like Tim Burton, who is so well suited to the project. I mean, this is his sensibility, and it's a perfect project for him. Everything that he brings to the table, his visual style, uh, production design, but then also the character type. his portrayal, Bruce Wayne, and you know, kudos go out to Michael Keaton for for what he did as well. He's a very real person. You get the sense of, you know, the pain that he lives with and none of it is trivialized. And I think that's one reason for me why, say in comparison to Joel Schumacher Batmans, this movie really endures more because nothing felt pandery. Nothing felt like, oh, we have to add in a joke here, which was very much something that kind of dragged those Schumacher films down. Um, this one really felt like it was speaking its own language. So those are the things that really resonate for me. And also you had these amazing performances. I mean, Kim Basinger, who as an actress, she is also really well-suited. Her, her qualities as a performer are so well-suited to the role of Vicki Vale. You know, kind of emotionally guarded, but, uh, you know, a sense of adventure or curiosity. Jack Nicholson, I mean, oh my God, like what a, what a perfect role for him. So everybody is really bringing all of themselves to the table and they're utilized to their fullest. So um, I I think you don't see that often in movies in general, but in particular, this one, it just had all that stuff going for it. So that's that's why I think for me, it's it's still a movie you could put on now and it doesn't feel like, oh, you have to excuse some of the, the clams. It's just it plays really well.
0: You know, it is interesting when this movie like kind of first came on my radar, like the Burton Batman and all of that, because I I'm young enough to, you know, really have grown up with the Nolan Mm. version of Batman. Um, And at first, I think most people would think that Tim Burton's really not a great choice for a Batman movie. But then Mm. when you think about it, along with all those points you just made, he also has this very kind of gallows humor, which I think Mm. is so suited to especially the Joker, but just kind of the world of Batman in general. Um, mm-hmm. There is also that very big outsider quality that you see in almost all of Tim Burton's films, whether it's, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas or Beetlejuice or even D- the Dumbo remake that he made a yeah. couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, There's some sort of just on the outside of mainstream society quality to all of his main characters. And I think Batman kind of fits in perfectly with all of that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I think there's, there's an outsider quality and a fantasy quality to his stuff that it's like you couldn't ask for a better cross section of that than Batman. I mean, you think about the, the Christopher Nolan movies and Nolan is all about this hyper realism. I think there's even a, a scene in one of his Batman films where, Bruce Wayne talks to his accountant, so it's everything is so kind of um, <laughs> hyper stuff. hyper real, yeah. And he that's that's his sensibility, and and it extends to production. You know, everything's done practically. You know, mm-hmm. even at great expense. Whereas in the nineteen eighty nine Batman, there's a lot of like miniature work and a lot of model work and stuff that you know looks very fantastical. Like there's that moment in the film where the bat wing comes up and it perfectly silhouettes against the full moon Mm -hmm. before coming back down. There's all the, all these tips of the hat to the fact that you're watching a comic book movie. um, But none of it again, seems pandering. It feels like it's all integrated. And I think it's because you have Tim Burton, that's his sensibility. So he is being himself and everyone around him and actors, everybody is being themselves too.
0: Yeah. And I also think I'm basically just going to spend most of this episode yes-ending Darren because he's a very (laughs) smart filmmaker, which when we go to see movies either as like a double date or just the two of us, he's always saying a bunch of stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, I totally picked up on that and just like crossing my fingers (laughs) behind my back. Well, I have
1: seen this movie more than once, so that helps. That's true. I've
0: seen it maybe one or two times. and The first time I was like, I don't know, 1920 or something like that. So fair. But um, I do also think to yes-and-you, the very... German expressionist style that Tim Mm. Burton was heavily, heavily influenced by, which you see a lot in Beetlejuice and you see a lot in even Pee Wee's Big Adventure in some ways, you know, like that wide shot of Gotham where all the buildings are just like straight up to the sky and it kind of, Mm. not to say it looks bad or it doesn't look good production quality wise, but everything kind of looks painted on, which I think does kind of lend itself also to the fact that you're watching a comic book movie slightly in the way Because I kind of feel like Taika Waititi does that with the Thor films a bit, Mm. where everything's so hyper colorful Mm -hmm. and everyone's just so over the top. You know, you're watching a comic book movie. You're watching a very colorful, not grounded in reality world. So why not kind of like lean into that?
1: Yeah, I think that's totally, totally spot on. I mean, I think that, you know, in this sense, comic book movies are no different than other movies in that that's kind of what you want from every movie anyway, where you want every piece to feel like it belongs mm-hmm. you know yeah. willie wonka and the chocolate factory shouldn't have been a gritty family drama you know mm-hmm. it's it makes sense the way that it looks because of the kind of story it is and i think when movies don't do that you walk away as an audience member going like ah, it didn't really fit i mean this is one of my can i complain about other tv shows or movies on this
0: do it do okay, it good. Do i didn't it. want to
1: call out names feel free to bleep this later but <laughs> one of my issues with only murders in the building it's a show that i've been watching uh, kind of begrudgingly is that it doesn't integrate in that way you know it's there are elements of it that feel like uh, they're taken from a very heavy uh, kind of murder thriller but then there's other things that are a complete farce that are coexisting but they never really integrate like one of my issues with the music is it feels very much uh, like it's uh, has a profundity that I don't see in the action. You Mm -hmm. know, the music is very ponderous and very uh, kind of ruminating, but then the action is very farcical and kind of uh, ridiculous. And the cinematography is, is almost kind of detached and the production design though is kind of colorful. So there are all these, pieces that feel like they don't really belong and they don't form a complete picture now that's subjective of course some people might love that show so i don't Mm -hmm. want to take away from that but uh, i think it's hard to argue that the 1989 batman doesn't succeed in that way because you can talk about all these things individually but ultimately do they do all kind of lock together you know the story and the acting and the production design the cinematography um, the score, I mean, Danny Elfman's score well, I is heard Danny Elfman. so I- iconic. The themes are so resonant, um, and it's a bit of a hat trick too in that type of movie where you do have all these things coexisting and they do work, because you know this kind of deep character work, and you know the the kind of colorful man in a rubber suit stuff. Uh, It works, I think, because of Tim Burton, you know, and it it wouldn't have been Christopher Nolan's sensibility. He turned Batman into something that worked for him. And that was its own thing. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the 1989 Batman just really, it's a real feat, I think, in that sense.
0: It is. And I think also the pairing of Keaton and Burton, because I didn't Mm -hmm. actually know Keaton came from a comedy background. So he was able to balance.
1: Yeah, Mr. Mom.
0: Mr. Mom, yeah. a classic. I forget if Beetlejuice was before or after Batman, but even in Be- Beetlejuice, it's right. oddly enough, it's kind of like um, the Eddie Munson character in Stranger Things, where like mm. he's very like broad and over the top, but also very grounded at the same time, mm. and I think that sensibility really matches this film, which is over, I don't want to say over the top, very grandiose, very grandiose, but like very grounded.
1: Well, yeah, he can give you all those moments. I mean, he has such a range as an actor where he can do like, you know, this farce comedy, of Mr. Mom, or he can do like, even in Batman, there's these quiet moments where he's doing almost nothing, you Mm -hmm. know, as Bruce Wayne, he's just looking at something or thinking about something. You know, there's moments in the back cave where he's just looking at the display, you know, doing the classic zoom in and enhance of like security footage and stuff, freeze framing on Joker's face. And you just see him looking, thinking with his glasses in his hand. And that's just that's just great acting. You know, he can be doing the biggest stuff or the smallest little thing where he's doing almost nothing, but he's still interesting to watch and he still feels like he belongs in the story.
0: So, to bring in some slightly recent news from when we are recording mm-hmm. this episode, the most recent iteration of Batman, The Batman, from Matt Reeves with Robert Pattinson in The Cape and Cowl, it was super dark, and also it was wonderful, and I loved it, and it also made a bunch of money at the box office. Mm-hmm. And then recently, just judging by the creative team behind this film, the more comedically-toned Batgirl movie that was being made and basically was done and going through test screenings and going through post was just shelved by Warner Brothers. They're not putting it on HBO Max, they're not releasing it theatrically, nothing. Is this kind of like history repeating itself where Warner Brothers fired Tim Burton after his first two Batman films and then hired Joel Schumacher for a more lighthearted version, like the fun, campy, Batcar, don't leave the cave without it version, And then they kind of realized they made a huge mistake and then they went back to the dark stuff.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I think, I think a lot of this stuff is the pendulum kind of swinging. I think the gritty Batman, the realist Batman happened with Christopher Nolan. And then we got curious with the Batman with, you know, going back more gritty, more dark kind of rendition, but still a little less in the realism category than uh, Christopher Nolan. So I I think there's always going to be an urge to kind of do something new. And what that usually adds up to is just different than what it was before, even if it was done, you know, two or three versions ago. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, who knows what's going through the studio's heads. It's probably not an easy call to make to just like shelve a whole project that you've already sunk so much money into. But if I were to guess, I would say that um, it probably just wasn't a good movie. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you know, which happens sometimes movies just don't come together. They don't gel. Like we were talking about these elements in 1989 Batman of like, you know, the man in rubber suit fighting crime, but also like childhood trauma. You watch your parents get murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a hard thing to juggle those two unless you have the right creative team in there. And I'm not very familiar with the story was that they were trying to tell, but maybe it just didn't work. And they got to the test screenings and... They were looking at well, we could do reshoots or we could just shelve it, and the shelving ended up being the better thing. Um, but I I will be curious to see what they do next because there seems to have been a trend, at least in the DC world, of making things very gritty and dark. You know, mm-hmm. think of Superman, for instance, or Justice League, or any of Zack Snyder stuff. Yeah, there's a real heaviness there, and Marvel has been getting lighter and lighter. You know, like uh, Thor: Love and Thunder is just like a romp you
0: know <laughs> it's, it's an 80s romp
1: it's an 80s romp with screaming goats or even uh you know. which i loved the yeah.
0: series miss marvel which is all about like confessions yeah. of a high school superhero like exactly. it does get heavy you know it talks about the partition in the 1940s of india and pakistan yeah. but mostly it's like a teenage girl having a crush on her driver instructor and then she finds out she has superpowers so i see what you mean yeah. like you're suddenly going really
1: light that's the core yeah and i i think you know, there's always been an interesting dance between Marvel and DC where like Marvel will be out ahead and DC will try to do something to draw people in. Um, So I think this is just the latest in that, you know, zooming back. I think that's the latest in that kind of power play where DC is trying to create their own universe and maybe the comedic you know, Batgirl was a way of like broadening their emotional horizons a little bit Mm -hmm. because they are kind of pegged right now as being the heavy kind of Zack Snyder playground. Yeah. And I, I don't think that it serves them to be that forever. So they're trying to break out of that. And maybe it's just a rocky, rocky road for them.
0: Do we also think, not to bring too much about like gender and race representation, but I do also wonder if there's something to be said about the fact that this isn't a Batman movie or this wasn't a Batman movie. This was a Batgirl movie. Mm. So people didn't really know how to kind of separate it from the movie that just came out in March that everybody went and saw a bazillion times or, Mm. you know, the Alicia Silverstone character or Alicia Silverstone's portrayal of Batgirl in the movie that nobody liked. Like, I wonder if it's also just... Because I saw this happen with Suicide and Harley Quinn, where people didn't know how to just separate it from the thing it originally came from and just say, oh, this is Batgirl. Mm-hmm. In the way that with um, Birds of Prey, they couldn't really go, okay, this is like the Harley Quinn movie. Cool. Love it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's very smart. I think there's a lot to be said about the female characters in even the MCU, too, uh, kind of getting short shrift. Like, it took them so long to make a Black Widow movie. Yeah. They made the Black Widow movie after she was already killed. <laughs> so it's like, come on, guys. Uh, it's so And it had to be a prequel. Uh, so it's it's odd. I think that there's a miscalculation that happens a lot of the time with, um, with race and gender uh, when it comes to studios where the reasoning goes like, well, there's just not the box office draw, you Mm -hmm. know, you know, there's not the built in audience and it takes, you know, say people like Jordan Peele to come in and just go like, well, no, the audience is there. You just need to you know, make something for them instead Mm -hmm. of just excusing it all the time. So I think that's, that's definitely the case with female superheroes. I mean, Marvel has done probably a better job than DC certainly of, you know, they have, um, you know, Captain Marvel. They have Miss Marvel. Mm -hmm. So, and I think I have to give them props for particularly in their TV shows of really getting diversity in front of and behind the camera. So they're, they're making progress, but I think there's still, you know, a ways to go before we can see like equal billing and equal proportions of solo films for like female characters versus male characters. And with regards to Batgirl. Yeah, I think here's what I'll say about Batgirl is I think there's. When you have a character like Batman, there's so much history behind that character in the ter- in terms of so many movies having been made and so many people giving their take on Batman, mm-hmm. that it, it's kind of an advantage and a disadvantage. It's a disadvantage in that every new Batman movie gets judged based on the other ones. Mm-hmm. It's an advantage in the sense that you have that built-in audience that gives the studios you know anxiety arrest a little bit. Um, and also you have a lot of catalog of looks, a lookbook, if you will, of like, well, which Batman do you want? Do you want the gritty Batman? And Here's some examples. Do you want the comedic Batman? Well, you have Adam West over here. Mm-hmm. Do you want the like almost too real that he has an accountant Batman? Here's Christopher Nolan. <laughs> you know, so that applies to a character like Batgirl, where I don't think there is that, you know, catalog of past interpretations that you know, are kind of pushing or even available to creators. So and, and I think big studio movies are poor places to um, introduce new characters because they're just mm. not set up to do that. You know, a big studio movie is almost by definition based on a pre-existing property because otherwise it, it, studios wouldn't buy into it. Um, And Batgirl is a pre-existing property, but it doesn't have that, you know, back catalog of previous screen depictions that are widely varied. So I think in a sense, maybe that character is suffering from that in that, you know, it's going to take more work to on the part of creators and studio executives to go like, hey, this is a whole new character. We really don't have a strong vision for it. We got to invent something. And That's, that's a tough thing to do by committee. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it really takes, you know, I don't know what the creative team was behind Batgirl, but I think you really have to match, you know, the right people with, and, and someone with a really strong vision for who that character could be. I, I would really love to see the cut that they, they threw away because then I could talk more in depth about like, maybe it did work and maybe there's other reasons why they killed it. But I think, you know, female characters, it's always like a chicken and egg thing where studios and everybody is going like well they've never been adopted or adapted before so we don't know if they'll be successful but then they never do so it it becomes a harder road i think to travel for you know getting those projects over the hill than it would be for um, the male driven projects just because of the burden of history you know
0: I agree, and even though this is a very different movie that I'm gonna mention, I do think there are shrivels of hope with, for example, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Michelle Yeoh can read the newspaper and I will go see it. So I just wanna preface that I am a diehard Michelle Yeoh fan. She's one of the few people I would get starstruck meeting. But anyway, while it's not a superhero movie, you could call it an action movie, one of the highest grossing movies of the year, its lead is a 60 year old woman of color and yet all types of people not just other 60 year old women of color went to see this movie and absolutely loved it so i do see what you mean by the movie by committee element of everything everywhere all at once probably wouldn't have survived going through the warner brothers ranks or the disney ranks Mm -hmm. or the fox ranks or you know whatever ranks have you so i do think there are there is hope and it is kind of a shame that like they wouldn't just take a chance on it because I think I read that the budget was $70 million, which for superhero movies, yeah, that's not insane. I mm. mean, obviously, $70 million is not something to sniff at, but it was a pretty moderately budgeted film. So if the reviews weren't, I mean, the test screenings weren't awful, awful, it is kind of a shame that they weren't at least ready to kind of... Yeah. Take some sort of chance on it.
1: You wonder how bad could it have been, really? I mean, mm-hmm. considering some of the superhero movies that did get released that are just so widely panned, you know, it's... I I really... I don't know if we'll ever know the full picture of, like, what what really went on with that movie. Uh, we'll probably find out eventually. I, yeah. I think enough people will be curious. There'll be leaks.
0: I think 10, 15 years down the line when... I don't know, whatever NDAs the creative team signed in terms of like talking about the behind the scenes stuff or whatever. You're right. I think eventually, 10 to 15 years down the line, we'll find out, kind of like the Fantastic Four film. It'll eventually leak online. There'll be some documentary about why this like big tentpole movie got shelved. And
1: yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, even just thinking about Fantastic Four, I mean, they weren't good movies, but yet they still, you know, got out there. So
0: How has there not been a good Fantastic Four movie?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I, I have my theories about that. I think Fantastic Four is a bit of a cheesy group. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a big stretchy man, you know, so it's... it, And also they haven't been doing a lot of work in terms of integrating those characters into the MCU already. So it feels kind of like where are these guys coming from exactly
0: that Um, we know of that we know of. i mean kevin feige has not been texting me saying like hey lana guess what i'm gonna do you're gonna love it yeah yeah not yet (laughs) but i wouldn't be surprised because mild spoilers for miss marvel they are hinting at integrating the x-men a lot in the last couple of disney plus series so i wouldn't be yeah i wouldn't be surprised if it's like first we're going to integrate the x-men then we're going to integrate the fantastic four but back to our caped crusader yeah um there will probably be like seven hundred fifty thousand versions of a batman movie again before we die or before the earth implodes like whichever comes first how do you think burton's batman which is widely considered even before I don't want to say disregarding the Adam West TV series, but in terms of Batman on the big screen, that's the one that started it all. How do you think it's going to stand the test of time compared to the Nolan iterations and the Reeve iterations? I want to include the Lego Batman movie because it's really funny and everyone should watch it. And Billy D. Williams gets his due by playing Two-Face.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, in some ways, we already have a sense of that, right? Because Adam West's rendition... Is how how many decades old now? Is it 50? I'm gonna 50 years.
0: Google Adam West.
1: We're finding this out in real time here. It is
0: 1966. Mm, 2022 okay. minus 1966 is fifty something? No. Sixty something. I I don't know guys. I gotta see in math. I'm just gonna pull up my calculator.
1: Minus nineteen, what was it? 19- nineteen
0: sixty-six.
1: It's 56 years ago. Wow. wow. That's So yeah, it's it's been 56 years. I think like I think its place in history is more or less set in many ways. I mean, I think what might change it, I mean, first let's talk about what its place in history is. I feel like it's it's looked upon as like the pretty much of its time, the kind of like groovy 60s TV show version of Batman where things were campy and then uber campy, Mm -hmm. um, they embraced sound effects and, you know, text on screen and there was no, it was basically like a live action cartoon, you Mm -hmm. know, in some ways. And the character of Batman was, um, you know, very, very pared down and less real, um, and much more of a kind of swashbuckling kind of hero. So I think that's that's kind of where that Batman is. That where that might change is speaking of the pendulum swinging. We might get tired of realism and and darkness. I think it's, it's very popular just in the culture right now. If you know Stranger Things, and if you listen to a lot of music that's kind of has a lot of heavy synthesizers, uh, mm-hmm. Billy Eilish. You know, great stuff, but if you think about where we are in that swing, you know, we're kind of in a dark, kind of mysterious, somewhat heavy time in culture where things that have that kind of darkness are um, kind of cathartic, I think, for us right now. I agree. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I agree. And so, um, but if we might get to a place where culture wants to just have a good time and we want to just take a vacation from our troubles and you'll start to see the big cultural touchstones be kind of joyful and colorful and just about having a good time as i think it was a little bit in the 60s and 70s you know like i'm, I'm no historian but i think you can point to a lot of examples uh of like tv and movies that we're just kind of fun and joyful and colorful. And these are the things that kind of we associate with that era. And we might get back to that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then we might reassess Adam West's Batman as not being so campy, but just being fun and joyful and having a, having a good time and being creative with, you know, the things I talked about text on screen and, you know shiny costumes and stuff like that, so I think context is always you know key to how these things are evaluated. You know, I, I think in its time, I didn't even, I mean, for me personally, when I saw Christopher Nolan's Batman, I didn't think of it as like this hyper real Batman necessarily because it just seemed to fit in the firmament of culture and where we were at, and um, he was. Kind of a director of of the time, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think you know we'll we'll get to a place eventually where maybe the culture will align more closely to what Adam West Batman was. We haven't gotten there yet. I, I don't think we've been in that era. Maybe you could say the early '90s. Maybe, but I think that's where things will be evaluated differently. And I do think you know talking about Christopher Nolan, there might be a time when. People look at that Batman as being too real, as like Mm. too, you know, there might be a reevaluation like it was a comic book movie, but it was so serious. I I don't see it that way, but I'm just thinking abstractly like, you know, these, you know, nothing's permanent. You know, all these things come back around a movie like the 1989 Batman you know, isn't talked about, I think, as much as the Christopher Nolan versions, but there might be a time when that swings, you know, everything's Mm -hmm. kind of up for grabs.
0: Yeah, I do also wonder if, because of movies like No Way Home, for example, Mm -hmm. we're getting more comfortable with the idea that there can be multiple versions of one thing Mm -hmm. that, for lack of a better word, all get along. So, like, the Adam West Batman can exist right alongside the Christopher Nolan Batman which can coexist with the Lego Batman movie which maybe if they ever like take another chance on Batgirl that can coexist next Mm -hmm. to like the Reeves Batman so I do think that people are getting more comfortable with something not having to be one exact thing Mm -hmm. if that makes sense like you know Thor doesn't have to have one specific tone Uh, Iron Man I know he's not there's no movies of him anymore but like Iron Man doesn't have to be One specific tone. Batman doesn't have to be one specific tone. I think Mm -hmm. people are getting a little more comfortable with that fluidity, for lack of a better word.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think somebody said this um, in the run-up to the Batman, too, that, you know, Batman is kind of a unique character in the sense that um, he can endure multiple interpretations in the way that not every superhero can, let's say. So every generation kind of gets its own swing on the character. And I think you're right. I, I think certainly by this time it's been proven that you can, you know, portray that character many different ways and all of them have their place and none of them have been forgotten too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, history has not erased any of these different iterations. So I think that's, you know, that's an amazing thing too, just for one character to have that endurance i mean we've heard the origin story of batman so many times now but yet we still keep coming back so there's i think there's something fascinating about that character and that's that's ultimately i think what we're looking for is just good characters Mm -hmm. and you know we're talking about these different versions of batman because the end of the day was just a really well-written character that yeah it came from comic books but it's still just a really good story you know that bears telling
0: the most important question sir where can we find you on the interwebs? And also where can we find Phil on the interwebs?
1: Well, I'll do the most important one first, which is Phil is available for public viewing on Instagram. His handle is the cat says cat, um, because his stripes spell the word cat. You it's can, true. It's a can, little
0: freaky, but it's also wonderful. You can
1: check it out. And for me, you can check out my website, uh, darrenquan.com. Where you know there's a sampling of my music, my art, my film work, um, and that's probably a good way to to check it out. You can get in touch with me there if you if you so desire.
0: Darren, thank you so much. Thank you for being my first actual in the flesh, in person guest. Star. In person, thank you for the in cigar quote, and of the and, studio. And, <laughs>
1: thank you for the cigar and the alcohol, and then uh, you know the lovely bunker experience this was great
0: this does have some bunker vibes because just for visualization guys i have like blankets covering everything so we're like two steps away from putting tinfoil hats on our head
1: (laughs) yeah we were protected from the sound waves the gamma rays though are still getting into our brains
0: Eh, yeah well we'll see what happens with those gamma rays sir thank you this was a wonderful time thank you And that is our episode. I want to thank Darren Kwan so, so much for stopping by. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening. Do you have a favorite Batman? Are you still hoping that the Batgirl film will see the light of day at some point? As always, on social media, in the comments below, let us know. We always, always want to hear from you guys. And tune in next week as we take a look at another game changer that I will fully admit that I was old enough to see when it came out in theaters, (laughs) Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Thanks again for listening. As always, stay safe and keep watching movies. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to John F., Ferriolo Fencing, LLC, Mariano Dwyer, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl Braces Play